do you think the Fed is actually going to be able to get the indicators that they look at back down to 2%? Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics and excited because today we are going to dig into inflation, gold and silver, the stock markets, and try and unravel some of the things that we've seen happening, which uh, some different, some the same from perhaps what the Fed and the government has suggested will separate myth from reality and Fortunately, to join me is Greg Crennan of Golden Coast Consultants, who many of you might be familiar with on Twitter, where he shares a lot of his thoughts and does a great job of helping to break some of these topics down for people and also has a new newsletter, which I've been enjoying and does a great effort in that. And Greg, it's great to have you on here today, a second time on the show and welcome on back. And how's everything going with you today? Hey, Chris, thank you. Everything's going well. I appreciate you sending me an invite back and Hope to share some uh, knowledge, truth bombs uh, for you and your listeners. Well, I'm looking forward to that because obviously it's it's been a bit of a turbulent year. We've, we've seen some wild swings in gold and silver over the past year. Also in the stock markets, obviously a lot has been driven by the Fed and their interest rate hiking policy to bring inflation back to its 2% mandate, which at least according to the CPI, they've gotten closer than... I would suggest many people would have thought uh, in the past year, still not quite down there. Again, uh, we'll, we'll leave aside whether the CPI and PCE are the ultimate barometers of inflation, although I'd like to start there because June CPI, we saw 3%, 4.8% for the core year over year, PCE 3%, 4.1% for core. Shadow Stats has us at 10.8%, a bit higher than 2% mandate, but curious, uh, because I know this is something that you dig into and cover quite a bit, do you think the Fed is actually going to be able to get the indicators that they look at back down to 2%? So, great question, Chris. In regards to inflation, going back to the Fed's core CPI of 2%, uh, is going to require uh, some real destruction to the economy for that to happen. Because we're coming at, off of such a high level of inflation, which is a, uh, money creation or money supply increase, uh, that now is starting to circulate. So now we're starting to see velocity tick up on a year-over-year -year change. Money M2 money velocity is up almost 11%. So even though the, the M2 supply has stopped going up, the current supply is now starting to circulate faster in the economy. And that's what we're seeing in the uh, CPI services. You're seeing that those prices are staying elevated. Uh, really, the only thing that has come down in the CPI inflation reports has been energy. And that's just because energy came off such a high price last year and that it's only measured on a year over year basis. So that's helped um, bring down the headline number. But if you actually break down the report, which I do, Every month, we're seeing uh, somewhere between 5 and 10% increases across the board on things like food, energy, uh, the price of new loans for cars, autos, shelters still rising. The owner's equivalent rent is still at 8%. So that those are very high numbers and aren't slowing down. And this is after a year of raising interest rates, 500 basis points by the Federal Reserve. And you would think that those numbers, if you would... Uh, look at the inflation chart recently that the 
Fed raising the interest rates has basically kept the core inflation, ex food and energy at 5%. So we really haven't come down uh, over the past year or so. And if you go back to 2021, when inflation was deemed transitory by the Fed, uh, the U.S. dollar has now lost 17% in purchasing power. And that's purchasing power that you and I and your listeners will never get back, Chris. Yeah, and certainly if we take a look even further back, you, we have a chart here 50 years going back. And interesting that it's not been very often that the Fed's actually hit that 2% mandate, even historically, let alone uh, what we could expect going forward, given the uh, conditions that are out there, let alone, as you point out, that a lot of the falling numbers based on falling oil price, which makes you wonder if we do see the oil price tick back higher in the second half of the year, which I think there's a good case to be made that that could happen, throws another wrench into the equation of what do they do then? If you start- Right, and the other thing is the interest rates do not really- slow down the spending of, of money. You really have to destroy the money supply uh, to really get inflation back down. Uh, when you look at previous, just over the past 20 years, the um, destruction really came from when the stock market declined in 2008 and in 2000 to 2002. Um, that's when the core PCE that the Fed deemed their 2% target back in 2000 uh, started becoming achievable, basically. So really, when you had two large stock market declines all within an eight-year period of each other is really when inflation at that core PCE level stayed at their 2% mandate that they made back in 2000. Because that was also a recent development. Uh, they never had the 2% target before. And this has only been a fairly recent when you look at the grand scheme of things in, in history. Now, when you're looking at, well, the money supply increase, the U.S. Treasury today just announced that they're probably going to be somewhere between 1.5 to 2 trillion in deficit spending this year. And that's for the fiscal year of September 2023. So that money has to come from somewhere. And if the government is not increasing taxation, to bring in that additional revenue, that $1.5 to $2 trillion has to come from somewhere. So the Federal Reserve will help contribute by printing money, buying those bonds, and then giving those newly fresh dollars printed to the government to then spend and give to the consumers in the United States. And uh, those dollars will now be circulating even more in the economy. So the interest rates is one equation to slowing inflation, but it's not the only real way of getting the inflation back down. Actually, in 1978, Jimmy Carter actually reduced the deficit and assigned Paul Volcker to the Fed, where they raised the interest rates. And then that at that moment, actually, the deficit went down as a percent of GDP. We actually have our debt going up going to our GDP, which means that inflation is only going to be sticking around with us until at least some complete demand destruction. And if there isn't, we're going to be in this environment, which is what I've been calling for the past uh, three years now, is stagflation, meaning that we're not maybe going to hyperinflation, but we're just going to get these nasty, you know, moderate to high price increases with no end in sight, basically, until 
you know, drastic action is changed in the money supply. Yeah, it seems like quite an ideal course, uh, perhaps different than what government officials are suggesting. And we'll we'll touch on the uh, recent downgrade of the U.S. debt, which Janet Yellen and White House, of course, disagree with. Although, do you see any way that it's avoidable that the Fed resorts back to QE? I mean, now we have the higher interest rates, we have debt getting reset at higher interest rates. And uh, like you pointed out, there's seemingly no end in the, the borrowing, which is accelerating now. They don't talk about that much, but I mean, it. you wonder where it ends. And something you've been addressing on uh, some of your Twitter commentaries is what what is the tipping point? So two yeah, questions, right, right, exactly. any way they avoid it? And what is the tipping point? So as far as I've been, you know, collecting the data really since the 2019 repo crisis is that the Federal Reserve continues to buy U.S. bonds, whether they're treasury bonds or mortgage-backed security. These are government guaranteed bonds that the Federal Reserve has been buying. Uh, they have been basically nonstop since 2019. And even though the Fed's total balance sheet has been declining since last year, the Federal Reserve just recently on the last FOMC meeting, Jerome Powell has recommended that all banks use the discount window. And the discount window is another form of QE where the ba a bank that may be distressed will sell their assets, which would be government-backed assets, to the Fed, and the Fed will in exchange give them the loan. They're also involved in the BTFP, which is another asset buying facility for the Federal Reserve, which uh, was just created in uh, March when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And to me, this is actually even worse than what the Fed was doing in the 2019 repo crisis and since, because this facility that the Fed has created has now told all the banks that if your bonds that you bought at 0% and 1% interest rates lost 40% in value, knowing now that interest rates are 5% today, and those bonds lost half their value, the Fed will give you 100 cents on the dollar, making you full again. So this basically took your asset. We're supposed to be destroying money supplies to stop inflation. And the Federal Reserve just said, hey, you know what? We'll give you 100 cents on the dollar and create more money. So like that bad investment that you made, it's like it's never even happened. And as you can see on the date here on, on July 26th, uh, it just hit a new record high, which means that banks are still borrowing from the, fret, uh, the Fed and they're unloading uh, more of their worthless bonds, especially now that interest rates are even higher across the board. The 10-year now is over 4%, which is going to cause some turmoil in the markets. And this is not going to be good uh, for the Fed because and for the government because the money to pay the interest on the debt has to come from somewhere. And if they're not raising taxes on you, I, and, and, and your listeners, then that money has to come from somewhere. And based on everything that we're seeing, I believe that most of the money is gonna be coming from the Federal Reserve. And with all that said, do you think that we're going to be seeing more of what we saw earlier this year in terms of banks? Um, obviously a lot of the mortgage and treasury debt with the higher rates losing value, some have said that it's just a couple of banks that were mismanaged, although what's your thoughts on whether we are likely to see more banking issues going forward? I think there will be more banking uh, mergers and, you know, closes 
And uh, because what happens is that a lot of the assets that are on the books of these banks are now worthless because the interest rates are so high. So that means they're they're insolvent. And you're going to need banks to buy up more ba- the little little guys, uh, unless it's a bigger bank, which will need like a Silicon Valley bank, which will need, uh, you know, whether it's a, an official bailout or an indirect bailout. But there is definitely some banking turmoil. And with interest rates staying higher for longer, it's definitely going to pose an issue in the uh, banking sector. What the yield curve is telling us is it's tightening the the ability for banks to lend, meaning like, why would the banks write you a loan today when they can get a better return in the in the debt markets? So that means the credit conditions tighten, which then is supposed to cut off the supply of the money going into the economy, which was supposed to bring down demand. And I think that's one of the things is that works with a lag. And you know, one of the things I'll give Jerome Powell credit for is that money monetary policy does work with lag. So those credit and and uh, loan tightening conditions, uh, we're just starting to see the effects of that in the in the economy now. Yeah, and we did get the senior loan officer opinion survey, or the SLUs as it is known, that came out earlier this week, showed that U.S. banks report tighter credit, weaker loan demand. So certainly agree with what you're mentioning there. Another thing that happened earlier this week is that we also had a downgrade of U.S. debt. Um, White House saying it defies reality to downgrade the U.S. at the moment when President Biden has delivered the strongest recovery of any major economy in the world, thought it was kind of clever that they're referring to this as the Trump downgrade, because it's a direct result of the extreme Make America Great Republican agenda. I don't know if this is the Trump or Biden downgrade, whatever you want to call it. I mean, a lot of these things have been going on for both parties for a long time, but in addition well, to- well, well, def- definitely both parties have uh, increased government spending uh, since we went off the gold standard 52 years ago this month. But the issue is that the downgrade happened under President Biden's watch. He has created massive amounts of deficit spending, which he didn't have to sign those deficit spending bills to include in infrastructure, clean energy, all those Trillions of dollars were printed after COVID. So it was non-emergency funding that was printed. Interest rates were rising during that time frame, And there was still no re- uh, pushback on maybe we shouldn't be printing, at, printing so much money due to the fact that interest rates were rising. The economy in 2021 was fine. Uh, and you know, here the government was still trying to push massive uh, spending. Now, if you look at the GDP report, the one that just got published, it may have shown that the the economy grew at about two two and a quarter percent. But if you look at where the main uh, driver was for that GDP GDP report, it was actually government spending. Uh, so the government spending uh, contributed to almost like was massive numbers, like six percent. Uh, and but if you look at our goods and services, those were actually down. So that's saying that the spending is really just money printing and the actual economy that you and I are in uh, is actually contracting and shrinking. Uh, another uh, good data point to, to prove that is that retail sales are down adjusted for inflation and is a negative. And that means that we're getting less for our dollars and people are spending less. 
So not only are we spending maybe the same amount in a nominal term, but we're losing on the amount of supply that you and I can buy on those same dollars, basically. And Greg, that leads to my next question is that in the midst of all of this, how is it that we're seeing the stock market soaring again? I suppose in all fairness, we've seen gold and silver, despite current sentiment, actually do pretty well over the past year, uh, especially if you mark things last August or September. But how is it that uh, we'll start with stocks first that you see uh, stock markets almost impervious to the higher interest rates so far? Uh, well, I wouldn't go as say impervious. I think just because the way that people are obsessed with year over year or year to date gains. Uh, but if you look at the S&P, it's pretty much flat one year out, two years out uh, previously. You also, uh, the NASDAQ is still down from its all-time high in 2021. And before 2021, remember, if the NASDAQ is down since 2021, I think it's down about 5%. Uh, and we lost 17% in purchasing power adjusted for inflation. That's quite a loss in purchasing power that you would have to, to make up uh, to just keep up with inflation. Uh, now, this year, it did actually have a run, but uh, the big gains came actually after the Federal Reserve came in and bought government securities from the failing banks back in March. So it looked like everything was about to continue its, its lower bear market rally down. Uh, and when the Fed stepped in with that liquidity, you know, markets took off. And then, of course, you add in a nice narrative like artificial intelligence and you had this massive run in the FANG stocks. While the rest of the market didn't really uh, tag along, it definitely went up, but it definitely did not gain as much as the FANG stocks. And now we're starting to see with earnings this quarter that we're happening right now, they're actually down 6% on a year-over-year -year basis, meaning that companies are making less, which means earnings are coming down, but stock prices went up. So it's kind of like an inverse of what's actually happening. And to me, that's like a red flag that these aren't really... Um, that there's not much more room to run from today's current prices. And that most likely scenario is that prices uh, decline. We have Apple and Amazon earnings coming out here soon. Uh, but AMD, which was a major chip provider, uh, just reported very terrible uh, declines in revenue and profits and sales. And that was supposed to be, that stock was up like 80% this year, even though that they're, you know, making less money. So a lot of growth has been priced into the stocks today. Uh, when you're looking for a return on investment, you know, and yields are at five and a half percent, we know that something like gold and silver are always real assets that require minimal uh, time, time issues uh, really is a nice way going forward. And if you look actually on a year over year basis, silver is actually one of the best performing uh, asset classes over on a year over year basis. And with that, it, you know, silver can be very volatile, uh, but just like the NASDAQ, it can. So it's like just one of those things where uh, if you believe, you know, a couple of years from now that silver is going to be much higher, you know, these, you know, looking at the chart here, you can have some massive swings in the, in the price of silver. And that is just, um, I think part of it is the way that the futures market is traded, uh, it's in competition with the dollar, but I look at this is that the the dollar or the Dixie index is still pretty strong. Interest rates are at five and a half percent. Silver's hanging in there at twenty five dollars an ounce. 
gold is hanging in there around record highs. I mean, 2000 is pretty much gold's record high. Yeah, when I think 2050 or 2070 was record high, but gold at 2000 with record high uh, or 23 year high interest rates uh, is a sentiment of, of how powerful gold can be. Uh, and it actually since 2021, gold is the best performing asset uh, and compared to the S&P and the um, NASDAQ and the Dow when inflation went up 17%. So when you were looking at total net worth and preserving purchasing power since 2021, uh, gold has done its job. But I think when you're looking at the price of gold, you're looking more, and we've talked about this in December, is, you know, we always talk about gold as an inflation hedge, which I, I, I agree it is, but really gold is more of a fear hedge. And if you take a look at the data that gold actually reached its uh, record high earlier in the year when the banks were actually collapsing. So when there was that fear and that turmoil in the market, we actually had the VIX spike and what spiked with the VIX, the price of gold. That's because when there's currency turbulence, market turbulence, economic turbulence, you know, investors want a safe haven. They want to be, make sure that the only real asset that they really want to buy in times of fear and panic is gold. So when you had the Silicon Valley Bank fiasco with them falling, gold went up along with the VIX. But since that time in March, April, the VIX has went down and the price of gold has basically been flat. So, you know, basically once the Fed came in with the money printing through the BTFB, uh, the price, even though they're creating more money, uh, investor sentiment was, okay, now we can go back to, you know, gambling on, on Wall Street kind of a thing. And, you know, I, I, I look at always gold as more of a long-term investment. It's doing its job in, in the past two years. It's been doing its great job of holding and maintaining your wealth uh, because holding dollars long-term is not a great thing. And with that, we're on the 52 anniversary of the U.S. going off the gold standard. Uh, and in that time frame, the dollar has lost reportedly uh, 87% in purchasing power. So I can continue to believe that that data, that data and trend will continue, especially since we're talking about the debt and that the only way that that that's going to constantly grow, which means that we're constantly going to be printing more money until someone in D.C. decides to stop creating more money. Well, I don't think we have uh, that that to worry about anytime in the near future. And yeah, it's interesting. I know the sentiment in the metal is not so high right now. Although, as you point out, gold still not far off its highs. And especially if you measure back to even the year 2000, I believe, is still outperformed the stock markets. Uh, I think that's the case since uh, 1971 as well. So on the other side, silver still in the mid-20s. Curious your outlook for silver going forward and also something I see pop up from time to time. There's a debate whether silver is still a monetary metal, whether it's now an industrial metal on the industrial side has some interesting supply and demand fundamentals where we're running a deficit, seeing inventories drawn down. So I suppose you can make a case whether monetary or industrial, some uh, room for optimism either way, but curious what you're seeing on the silver side. Right. Great, great question, Chris. And one of the things with the silver side is kind of like the oil side. Uh, oil recently just hit a record high in demand. And the SPR just reached one of its lowest levels dating back a couple of decades. And but yet the price of oil is still only like 
$80 a barrel. This is with, you know, geopolitical concerns, the, the two I just mentioned, but yet oil is still at $80 a barrel. And when I look at the price of silver, I kind of look at it in the same way. We know demand is strong. Silver is needed for the clean energy that, that most world governments are pushing, which we silver didn't have until the most recent you know, five years or so, because we never had government push so uh, such clean energy before. Uh, the monetary uh, bonus of silver, the general command and awareness of precious metals in general, I think that's starting to come back. Recently, it was just reported that millennials actually own more gold than baby boomers do, uh, meaning that I think people are starting to be aware. Uh, more educated people are becoming aware. There's more people putting out information like on this podcast. And when I look at the overall trend, I mean, just like oil uh, is like silver, you know, we look at the price on Wall Street and we go, how can this be? Because the price on Wall Street is not the price that, that we get and will be in, in the future. Now, unless there was like some sort of uh, catastrophic event, like a 2020, um, maybe a massive global margin call, like a 2008, uh, if we just kind of continue on this path, uh, gold and silver should be really great assets. And then if one of those two events, uh, black swan events did happen again, you know, I would try and find as much uh, to get uh, to get a nice uh, discount and a rebound on, on those uh, metals, basically. Yeah, and it certainly was interesting to see the way people responded with the metals back when we had those banking issues a couple months back where I get it, there's differing views and some people don't think at all about the metals yet. When we saw that turbulence, it really was quite a surge in uh, especially physical buying of both gold and silver has slowed down since then as things have calmed down a bit, but something to keep in mind going forward. And with that said, Greg, I sure appreciate everything that you shared here today. You do a great job of laying things out. And I'll mention again that you have a new journal that you're putting out. And perhaps you could tell people where they can find you if they'd like to interact with you on Twitter or get access to some of your research. Great. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Golden Coast Consultants, as well as the Coastal Journal. The Coastal Journal is a new news platform that I would like to uh, expand. I'm trying to bring education, information uh, of what's going on with economics and the economy. Uh, obviously, you know, with the debt downgrade, there's going to be even more questions that people are going to be seeing today. And I, I want to try and bring the most accurate economic breakdown for the most common person out there so that just the average American can pick up one of the articles from the Coastal Journal and understand what's going on without having a PhD in economics. Well, I certainly appreciate that, Greg, because especially a lot of the things that the Fed does get quite technical and uh, you have a good handle on the markets, but also ability to write in a way that people can understand. So I'll put the links to both of those in the description field below and certainly would recommend for people to take a look at that. Um, and also, again, you can interact with Greg on Twitter where shares a lot and uh, is pretty active. So, Greg, thanks so much again for being here. It's great to catch up with you again. I love the, the backdrop matches your suit and uh, just nice to talk with you and make sense out of some of these things that are going on, especially at a time where I know that's really helpful for people. So thank you for being here and we'll have to do this again soon. I, I can't wait. Thank you, Chris.